Welcome back to the Inklecast. This week we're going to be doing a retrospective of the early 2000s interactive fiction scene, which John was a major part of, and I was about nine at the time. <laughs> so this is going to be a mostly John-centric episode, but we're going to prompt him by asking him some of the, the interesting things that came out of that era that we're only just starting to see in mainstream games today, which me and Joe personally find really interesting. Mm. So, well, I'm Tom. I'm John. And I'm Joe. Okay, so before we kick off, I've got to apologise that it was quite a long time ago now and I've probably forgotten a lot of the really good games. So if, like, proper text game authors from that time are listening and I don't mention your game, I'm really <laughs> sorry. And if I said at the time I liked it, I probably still do. I've just forgotten the name. So I just want to get that out of the way. <laughs> great. Um, so I guess what prompted us to do this episode is that we realised that the last two IGF winners, which is, I guess, Inkle and Sam Barlow on uh, Her Story were both sort of... IGF winners for narrative. For narrative, yes. Um, were both sort of, you know, uh, members of that scene. Um, so Sam Barlow did Isle, which I guess John could tell us about. Yeah, so it, it's really funny seeing how well Sam Barlow's been doing, because I've known the name for quite a long time. Isle is... I don't think it was his only text game, it's the one that I remember. It was... I think he would, he would accept this. It is a joke game. It's a gimmick game. One of the things that was going on at the time... Um, so this is in the world of writing parser-based games that came out of the Zork tradition and um, the Hitchhiker's Guide and various the, the sort of Infocom games. And they tended to be quite puzzly games. Um, they spawned graphic adventures and point-to-click adventures, and that's very much built into the kind of core of how that system works. It's moving objects around and combining them to solve puzzles. And so around the 2000s, there were a lot of people building that kind of game. And I built a big puzzle game at some point, and so pretty much as everybody else. But then everybody else was saying, how can we mess with this? How can we break it? We've got this tool for writing these games, but uh, what else can we do with it? They're kind of, and that very much that indie culture of finding the glitches, finding the openings, finding the avenues to sort of try something that hadn't been tried before. Right. So Isle is an unusual game because you only get one turn and that's it. <laughs> so in the entire game, you just get one turn, you type one command and then the game ends. And then you restart, and then you type a different command. But okay. it has, if you like, several thousand endings. Mm. And they all tell you different things. And some of them help you to understand quite what the plot is about. But some of them are slightly contradictory to each other as well. And some of them are absurd. And so the game that Sam was playing there was how many things could he implement? How many commands could he catch of all the random things that you might type? And <laughs> how many times could he give them different responses? That's really interesting. So is it a real game? No, definitely not. It's not Ooh, like... Ooh, is it a real well, game? Well, you know what I mean? It's not like... <laughs> it's not a it's not a fully fleshed, well-developed sort of, ex, sort of thing. It doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's not a narrative as right. such. But it is an interesting thing to play with. It is an interesting experience. Yeah. To have, and it's not a million miles away from the way that her story works, actually. In that yeah, I was just thinking that it's kind of like a library of things you can choose from, and yeah. basically dipping your hand in and seeing what you get out. Well, one of the really interesting things for her story for me was that the one of the affordances of parser games is the consult puzzle. So for a long time, there would be a puzzle where you get a book, which is like this is an encyclopedia, and you could type consult encyclopedia about a keyword, <laughs> and the game was to work out what the keyword. What? Mm. So you have all of the answers in this book, 
but you're not allowed to read the book from cover to cover. And that's mm. the rule. And that is obviously exactly how her story yes. works. It's entirely that mechanic. And that was used a lot in very clever ways by various ah. text adventure writers. So it was really nice to see that coming out in mm. her story. That's really interesting. Being incredibly applicable to a very accessible mainstream market without being kind of buried mm. inside the text game. Oh, that's interesting. Um, okay. Well, I'm quite keen that we turn this into a kind of quick fire kind of session on uh, interactive fiction games. So should we move on to the next one already? Yeah, let's. Um, I remember, what was I talking about? I was talking about Spec Ops Line and how it sort of splits the player and the protagonist. And you like, seen it years <laughs> ago, it's been done. Um, can you give me some examples of some games so, like that? Um, Passer-based games originally were almost entirely written in second person. So you were the faceless adventurer on this mission. And then after a while, there became a habit of writing a well-characterised character, but still writing in second person. So it's a, you are the prince of this Italian regime, and you would make that work by, by twisting all the parser responses to be in that character's tone of voice. Right. So instead of saying, you can't see any such thing, the character might say, why would we have such a filthy object lying around the palace? So the computer was constantly talking to you in character. But that evolved into a situation where that character in the game might actually know things that you, the player, don't know. And of course, there's a gap there. So everyone started driving wedges into it and seeing what they could do to, <laughs> to exploit that and to make that interesting. Could you make a game where the character wants to do something, but the player won't let them or where the vice versa? So there was a great game called Ramesses, which I've only just remembered by a chap called Stephen Bond. You play as an awkward teenager. I think it was multiple choice as well, actually. Um... But he refuses to do anything that he can't do. So you'd be sort of, say, being bullied, and one of the options would be to push the guy back, and you'd press it, and he'd just say, I can't do that. And it would whittle you down. <laughs> and I think it had choice for dialogue, but, but text for action. So that a lot of the time, your action was just being restricted and restricted and restricted by the character that you were embodying. That and sounds then, really powerful as a way to see the world through another character's eyes. It's a really interesting twist on the idea of giving the player agency that yeah. you kind of take it away. And then it cultivates in this point where you've been sort of rejected by your social group and you go onto this pier above a river and the player types jump or you're on a bridge or something, and you type jump, because it's that kind of story. It's a miserable sort of teenager, and you think, oh, okay, right, I'm going to commit suicide, and that's the end of the story. That's what we're expecting, and what the whole game has built us to accept. And then, of course, when you type jump, what happens? The character refuses to do it, because he's too scared. And it's a really wow. beautiful moment, in that it, it, it leads you to that point. It takes your... Wow. And it, so it uses it as its own narrative punch. It, is a, it was a really simple design, but incredibly powerfully done. And mostly it was just very, very well written. Mm. Um... Oh, that was a great game. I've completely forgotten about that. But the, the best example is, and the one that everyone who makes games should play, is a game called Spider and Web, which I always don't like talking about because I don't want to spoil it in case people <laughs> do play it. But it um, it uses a trick that uh, the Prince of Persia used in that the whole game is narrated in flashback. The idea is you are a spy, you've broken into the enemy base, and you're telling the story to your interrogator. So every time you get it wrong, the interrogator will say, no, 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 wait, hang on. You definitely didn't blow up that cabinet. That cabinet's still intact. Or you didn't knock out that guard. He's, he's around the corner. You, that's, go, have another go. Tell me the truth this time. And it opens beautifully. Uh, you walk down an alleyway and it says, you're a tourist, but you've got a little bit lost. You're in the wrong place. And then you walk out the alley and the interrogator says, we know you're not a tourist. 
Uh, you had a briefcase uh, and you go absolutely. back and you're in the alley but now you've got a briefcase of gadgets and you open it and there's one gadget inside and, the inter- and you get inside the door using this gadget and the interrogator says no we know that you had more than one gadget if you don't start telling me the truth it's going to be really bad for you so then mm. you play it again and now you've got a full briefcase mm. so it introduces this idea of the narrator really not being reliable plays that through right to the end where there's a core puzzle when you, you catch up with yourself you're, you're now in the chair you're in the present um and you've got nothing, you're tied down, you can't do anything, and you die. After sort of eight or nine moves of this guy taunting you, you you die, and you have to do something to escape. The game has already taught you that it's definitely not a talking puzzle, you're only allowed to say yes and no, or to be silent in the conversations. So you don't have to ask him a clever question or tell him something. You haven't got, you can't use anything with your hands. There is one object in the game which is a speech activated trigger the the, the <laughs> briefcase works by combining triggers and and effects so a speech activated trigger might be attached to a bomb or something mm. that's how your, your your gadgets work that is the only so you can work out by a principle of deduction that the only thing i can do as a player apart from just die is to say something it can't be to the interrogator the only object in the game i've encountered which i can talk to is this speech thing but i know that i'm just tied up in this chair and I haven't set anything up. I haven't put the speech thing anywhere. So you say the code word anyway, it explodes underneath your chair. Mm. Because the entire story you've told your interrogator is not actually true. And then you spend the second half of the game working out what on earth it is your, your character actually did do when they were breaking into the base in the first place. Oh, that's brilliant. And it is genius. And it's got a couple of little tweaks to help you work out what it was that they did. A couple of places where it's giving you hints. Like a door that's important, but it's not important, but it's sort of important, but it's not important. So you go there and it it's exquisitely executed because there's that moment of realisation you can get through it. You don't just mm. stop. You don't just get... No one really gets stuck there because there's a, it funnels you beautifully down. Mm. But it's kind of mind-blowing at the same time. So, so when people talk about Bioshock and they, the um, would-you-kindly moment, I can't help just saying because <laughs> it doesn't make any difference you don't have to do anything with it you're not there in the moment of realisation it's just a cutscene so if I understand correctly I guess there's a que- I have a question that, um, does it try to contrive a reason for why you don't remember what happened why I the player don't yeah. because me I the player am not playing as the character I'm playing as the version of the character that the character is trying to convince the interrogator is true okay so that's my role so effectively the role is that you're inventing a story right but what's beautiful about that is because i'm the player i approach the game naive innocent i haven't done anything wrong i don't know what's going on and that's exactly what the character would do they're tied up in the chair going i don't know where i am or who you are what is this base why why have you tied me down so i perfectly role play the fictional character that the tied-up character is trying to portray. It's incredible. Wow. Okay. And you do it without meaning to, mm. because that's where you are. So it takes, the, very cool. it takes the ignorance of the player and turns that from a bug into a feature, mm. which is just... Mm. I've never seen anything else do anything like it. But the idea of an unreliable narrator mm. is so strong yeah. that it's a wonder that games haven't played with it. I think, I think that's great, because it's such a, a, it's done so consistently and robustly. Because what I don't like is when you see inconsistent um, knowledge between the protagonist and the player. Like, there was a moment in um, the Quantic game Heavy Rain um, where there's something that the character knows that you don't know, but 
in general, it's got a very simple model of just you are the protagonist. Yeah, yeah. And then they do create this gap, but it feels really unnatural. I mean, I quite liked it in Heavy Rain because at least they were playing with it. Mm. Like, I like that they were trying it, yeah. not being bound yeah. by it. I admit, I don't think they executed it particularly yeah. well. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to know how it could be used in a kind of stronger context. I, I nicked it myself for a game called Make It Good, which mm. is probably the best text adventure that I wrote, where you're a detective solving a crime and about halfway through, or really at any point that the player notices, they might realise that actually the character has explicitly not told them something which is really very important to what you're doing in that game. Mm. And then the interesting thing is, now that I know this, what do I do next? Mm. Now that I know that I'm not just investigating and trying to arrest yeah. someone, how do I fit That's really interesting. And that was lovely, but it only works because it's a game that you play repeatedly. Mm. You, you try it, fail, restart. I was busy thinking, is this a kind of a fourth wall trick that you can just play once and then... And then not really play like, play it again, mm. but it does sound like it's something that you can apply to more than one type of game. I think so. Sp Spider and Web is very much a linear experience. It's uh, once you play it once, you can play it again and, and enjoy how clever it was, but you, mm. you can't get that moment back. Yeah. Um, Make it good is more like it's a deepening mechanic. That the more that you understand, the more that you realise you might want to apply a different strategy to try and mm. get a little bit further. And then by doing that, you learn a bit more and then you have a slightly different approach to go again. Mm. Um, so it's a bit more like a roguelike in a way. I mean, it's mm. not like a roguelike at all, but mm. in the, every time you play through, you ought to be more informed and get and slowly you get closer and closer to mm. the real character that's actually in the story. I guess Spider and Web had the advantage that that looping mechanic is within the fiction of the world. Yes, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Whereas for Make It Good, you are literally just quitting and restarting again, yeah. which is clunky. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. clunky. And I think if you put that in a in like a triple A game, mm. it, that would be really difficult for players yeah, to swallow. Absolutely. Um, yeah. One of the things that I always thought was quite interesting about Dark Souls, though, is that they get a lot of value by being incredibly hard and forcing mm. people to learn things. And they do it simply by just killing you and not caring about the fail problem. Mm. Like, because the fail problem in design is a huge problem. Yeah. Like, when people get it wrong, how do you make them go again without punishing them too hard for it? Mm. You know, 80 days is replayable. Mm. But we had to do a lot of work to make that true. So it's definitely an interesting aspect. So one other game I want to talk about on the subject of the player-protagonist divide mm -hmm. was a game called Photopia, which was by Adam Kadra and was incredibly important in the IF scene. It was a kind of milestone game in that it was the first game that really made a completely puzzleless design work. So it's a story, and it's just a story, and you just live through the beats of a story from a variety mm. of different characters' perspectives. You start off, you're, you're in a car, and there's a car crash, and then it cuts, and you're a little girl playing in a garden, and then it cuts, and then you're a babysitter mm. talking to probably the same girl, but a little bit older now. And this is really interesting, because this is all very relevant to today's narrative Absolutely. genre Absolutely, yeah, exactly. It, reading about um, That Dragon Cancer... Mm. Uh, you know, a very similar kind of design of game in that it's a series of vignettes designed to just put you in a world with some people. Mm -hmm. um, Photopia is, is a bit different in that it's not quite fair to say that it's puzzleless because it isn't. There's one puzzle which is connecting up all the different bits of story that it's telling you and seeing how they, what the hell this, this narrative is actually about. And when you slowly all the pieces fit together and you see the last sort of piece of the story, it's incredibly moving because you've mm. built a relationship with these people and suddenly you realise that it is all tied together in a rather tragic way. Um, Sounds very much like Crash. Uh, Crash? The movie. Ah, yeah, right. Okay, yes, it's that kind of structure. Exactly, exactly. And it's, it's really beautifully assembled, and it works because every little 
bit of it is it very simple to play. Mm. So there are usually very clear objectives. There's a bit where um, you're in your office and like your daughter is playing in the garden and you, she's giggling and then suddenly you hear a splash and she goes silent. And you know absolutely what you need to do. All you need to do is navigate around the house and pull her out of the pond because she's fallen into the pond. But that's obvious. You know that as a player. There's a definite sense of tension. You can't actually fail if you don't do anything. Mm she won't die in this part of the story because it's not simulating time but you don't really feel that you do it anyway you feel the tension you want to know what's happened next Mm. and it works entirely from the mystery the dramatic irony the sort of sense of what is happening here that that kind of all entirely narrative hooks drags you through the experience when you get to the end it's got a it's got a meaningful payoff which you know still makes me slightly teary now that i think Mm -hmm. back to it because it's just well developed well developed and well delivered and i think that was really pivotal for a lot of us in the text game writing scene because we suddenly started to think maybe we don't even need puzzles as a crutch Mm. to put games on maybe all we need to do is give the player something to do run through the house to save their daughter talk to this character for a few turns to get to know them a bit and that kind of lightness of touch lets you do some really really interesting things i feel like there's a bit of restlessness in the game industry that you can't necessarily get away with that so much anymore because I don't know whether um, you know indie games of this kind of generation have had the confidence to do that much of that kind of thing but I don't like I feel like it has been done but I can't off the top of my head think of any examples the the example that I would pull out is 80 days 80 days is full of exactly that kind of storytelling in that it's Mm, it's little moments where you just get a brief fleeting glimpse of something just enough to capture the flavour of it and then we move on and we close it down Mm. we don't let you explore it but we don't ever block you either Mm. and that's to me that's very photopian Mm. And it works by the assembling of lots of these pieces together to make it, a, to make a whole. But uh, Photopia is effectively a very linear game, right? Yeah, it's incredibly yeah. linear, and it yeah. is just one narrative. And once you played it, once you played it once, mm. and yeah, definitely, it's it's a and the the authorship of which vignettes you play and which mm. author in order mm-hmm. is incredibly important to that game. Mm. Um, so you know, it's different. But I think in terms of what you do moment by moment, there's a sort of similarity of of tone there mm. so for context what year was that produced I think that was 99 or 2000 wow okay right so, so this isn't too far after the sort of LucasArts text adventures died yeah right exactly I mean so this was remarkable because the other games being produced at the time tended to be you know by people like myself and, and Andrew Plotkin who wrote Spider and Web they tended to be big puzzle games where you had lots of complicated machines and like riddles mm. and, and things like that and then suddenly Cadra turns up and He'd written one game before, which was within this uh, sort of um, wheelhouse in that it was definitely characters, but it was still puzzles. It was just a puzzle about hitchhiking home or an interstate, and that's a that's not a not a game I'd actually recommend myself. But um, yeah, it was so clean and so focused that it really kind of was quite remarkable at the time. Yeah. So. I barely even remember 99-2000. Can you give me some context I, like on what sort of games were being produced in the mass market around that point? Because it feels like a lot of the, the, the sort of the outcome of this so, I've seen has only sort of emerged very recently. I think probably about Tomb Raider 2, maybe Tomb Raider yeah, 3. Yeah, right. It was around the time... Well, I, I was playing that games at the time. I was playing Myth 2 at the time. I think Shenmue might have been a... Shenmue might have been Yeah, a it was a kind of... I guess it must have been the Dreamcast generation. Right. That so, kind of time. So in the mainstream, there wasn't so much really happening with narrative at that point. 
Um, I remember playing Tomb Raider 3 and being excited by how narrative it was. Right. So that suggests that there wasn't much narrative going on in the case industry at the time. I mean, there were still some point-to-click adventures. I think The Last Express, which I've talked about infinitely, is it was about 99. It was so I wrote between 97 and 99. And The Sands of Time didn't come out long after that. That might have been 2001, 2002. Yeah, yeah I imagine it was when I was at university. Yeah. So. But again, that was a game that when it came out was remarkable for its narrative content. Mm. Mm. Yes. Anyway, so that's the first few brilliant things that the text game community did 16 years ago. Mm.